Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. I don't know about you, but I am totally bugging because today we are going to party like it's 1995. Joining me today to discuss a movie we are all totally but crazy in love with, Clueless, our editor-in-chief at Reason, Catherine Mangue Ward. Howdy. And the OG, my ride or die, we tried to bar the doors, but she barged her way in anyway. <laughs> Deputy Managing Editor at Reason, Natalie Dowzicki. I'm happy to be back. There are movies that scream the 1990s, movies we've done on the show before. Hackers is one. Um, oh my gosh, but, terrible. But, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but they do so in a, a, in a terrible, in a cringe way. But... Clueless, to me, screams it in the most endearing, beloved, heartwarming, nostalgic way. It, it comes off as a real distillation of this era in, in a way that is fun and bright and bubbly. What makes this movie so 90s in a way that has staying power without being cringe-inducing? So uh, I I asked us to talk about this movie on this podcast, and I, I want to kind of like set the stage for you because I think my answer has to include this information, which is that I went for like a ladies weekend with a bunch of elder millennials or like exennials, right? Like like a very specific age band were born between like 1978 and 1982, right? Uh, we There was a rainy day on this weekend. So we said, what are we going to watch? Let's watch Clueless. And all of us were psychologically destroyed by this rewatch. Absolutely destroyed. What we realized is that like a huge amount of the things that we believed about the world as teenage girls derived directly from this movie. That this movie was like a portrait of our psyches in 1996. And um, that it was not like your intro is interesting to me because it was not always a bright picture. There's actually a lot of um a lot of the pathologies of the 90s and of 90s feminism are very much on display and rewatching it I think for the first time as an adult um you know it it just it hit real different. So uh for me actually a lot of a lot of the takeaway was like yes iconic um yes like deeply deeply embedded in my psyche and maybe an entire generation's psyche but also like a fair amount of of like poison in there, like some some darkness as well. Sure. I think, well, I think it's also different because I was watching it from a standpoint of like, wow, my high school was not like that, right? So like, that's like, uh, my, <laughs> it's like my high school experience is not like this. You mean Philadelphia think, like, the, wasn't exactly like <laughs> Southern California? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, also, like, I thought like a lot of parts that are iconic about the movie to me that like have staying power now is like the soundtrack, the costumes, like that's one of the most popular, the like yellow, the yellow getup is the most, one of the most popular like Halloween costumes like to this day. hundred percent. We um, cannot think, talk about this movie without yeah. like really just giving the yellow plaid two piece ensemble it's due because that thing gets reinvented like every five years like it's always back it's not just back now because we're having the 90s revival or whatever yeah that and flare jeans um but i do i do think <laughs> the iconic parts of the movie that's that have like helped it like cement itself as like 
a movie that has staying power are definitely like the other the other aspects of it. I mean, some of the script is just real. I think is cringy. Um, like the the parts that like she'll make offhanded comments about how like coffee she couldn't drink the coffee because it stunts her growth. <laughs> like it was like comments like that. You're like, what the heck? <laughs> like no one thinks this. <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious. I think. It is cringe-inducing, and that poison that Catherine mentioned, I think, is is really evident, and I would totally agree. I think it is aesthetically bright. It has, uh, and obviously just based on the color palette and everything, it has that kind of vibrant, almost surreal quality to it. But I, I definitely agree. I can understand how there are these like amazing heights where it treats some of these characters in really creative and nuanced ways while in others reverting to very odd, dated norms about gender and sexuality uh, in general. So I think maybe that's a, a good place to start uh, with with you two, especially Catherine, because you, you mentioned it. What were some of the things that leapt out at you that made you sort of second guess some of the concepts that you drew away from it or or sort of the, the norms or uh, the, the mores of the time that now give you pause? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's an adaptation of Emma, right? And I'm a, a big Jane Austen fan, have definitely consumed, you know, reread Emma and consumed other adaptations of Emma in the meantime since I last saw Clueless. And um, I think, you know, the older you get as you're reading Emma, the more you realize that um, her kind of initial busybody, cheerful inclusiveness is in the end not a favor to the people around her, um, that it's like perfectly well-intentioned and that she's in many ways better than the other people in her social class who are just snobs. But she's still wrong. She's still wrong to try and make people, in this case, um, tie in the, in the clueless context, um, to try and make people something that they're not and to convince them to want something that they maybe can't have. Um, and that is like a very, very interesting message in the year of our Lord 2022, because um, because that's still a very, you know, that's like actually still a really tough debate. Like this is what um, our affirmative action debates are about in some ways. This is what our debates about um, worker retraining are about. This is our this is what our debates about who should go to college are about. Um, and in some way, I think all of us are uh, are Emma or Cher, like in the political class, like we're all trying to drag people who are not suited for a life that they don't want into a place where they f they find themselves wanting it and then suffer horribly for it. Um, and there's a there's a happy spoiler alert, I guess there's a happy ending, you know, for <laughs> for um, for Ty in Clueless. But, um, you know, in real life, there isn't always a happy ending. And people um, people really suffer from this particular kind of do goodery, um, well intentioned elitism that um, that Cher slash Emma displays. Um, I don't think I understood that when I saw this movie initially. I was like, oh, it's a makeover sequence. Who doesn't love a makeover yeah. sequence, you know? <laughs> um, and, and to this day, I will stand by the glorious power of the makeover sequence. But it's, it's, um, it's you know, it's a lesson about letting people be who they are, including letting people of different social classes be who they are. And I, I mean... Even as I'm talking, I'm like, oh, I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this. And I think I think that's interesting, right? Like this movie, let itself say this 
partially unselfconsciously because the 90s wasn't so sensitive about these types of debates, but also because it's true to the source material. And that's what the source material leads us to. Yeah, I also think that like a lot of the more like problematic lines, especially like reading it now, is like the role a woman plays in like her relationship with like a man. So like when you go through that whole sequence when um, Cher is waiting for, um, shoot, I'm blanking on his name, to come over and she's like getting um, – or she's like her friends like helping her do her makeup and she has like powder like red powder all over her face and then she's like in the in the dialogue in the back like in the narration that Cher is doing she's like and you always have to have something baking while while like a man is over and then like there's like the cl- the classic scene where she realizes whatever she's baking is burning but that that like when i watched that the, i've i've seen this movie like 800 times but when i watched it more recently i i thought of like wow that just screams like 1950s housewife Um, which I don't think that, I don't think that was something that the nineties, I mean, yeah, I thought like the culture was completely different than that. So that was why that part was like a little bit confusing. And that was also like speaking to like, I feel like speaking to more of like the elitism aspect than anything else. Um, also because the parents in this movie, like the dad is like an absentee lawyer. (laughs) That kind Um, of reminded me of like the eighties parent vibe of you know something that you they sort of lampoon in stranger things where it's like uh, because everyone is out and working all of the time the parents are never there to like monitor these kind of latchkey kids who are always out and about doing their own thing um and even when they're older and they can have more freedom and stuff that there's never the the lack of authority in any context both parental and within the school that is just chaos like you mentioned yeah. before is is clearly evident but but there's also this weird kind of the it was at the time and is in the movie as well there's this weird 1950s nostalgic quality mostly aesthetic but i mean it might come through in some of those gender norms um sort of like seeping up from the bottom but with like christian his character with his like his big high-waisted pants and he's where he's reading burrows and he drives that old vintage car the classic exchange uh when they go out for the date when when Cher and christian go out for the date and he says do you like billy holiday and Cher says i love him <laughs> <laughs> i also um a moment for paul rudd that man never ages like oh my god it is absolutely wild crazy. Yeah, i mean that was <laughs> as i'm watching the movie with my gals like that that was the first and most ma- like all of us just like screaming what do the kids say screaming crying throwing up right like just like paul Rudd yeah. appears on the screen and we're just like what's happening um and you know there's you know i think that you know, the movie really deserves props for like how well it handles source material that doesn't map neatly onto modern mores, right? Like she, in the in the end, Cher ends up with essentially her stepbrother. Um, you know, similarly in um, similarly in Emma, like it's you know it's the man who was there all along who sort of shaped her as a person. Um, that would have been like less problematic, I think, in in Austin's time. But they actually sort of managed to handle it with a like complicated LA in the 90s style like you know they're not really related and it's okay and you know whatever um but uh you know I think there's been some some discourse around the age difference stuff these days um and she is meant to be very young um but she's also as in Emma meant to have assumed some of the roles of um of basically like the woman of the house right her mother is dead 
and um and her father is like well intentioned but as you say like somewhat absentee the absenteeism is not painted as a problem in this movie because it wasn't perceived as a problem in 1995 or 1996 like it was just like yeah your parents are busy like i don't know where are they who knows um i will say on rewatch the dad makes no mistakes Real talk. No, he's a great like, dad. He is a great dad. And I did not know that when I watched it the first time. And this is actually, it's similar to the dad again. And Emma, who who comes through in the clutch, right? Like the, the key scene between Emma and her father. Um, and also this like this recurs in Austin, right? Like this, there's also a, a key scene between Lizzie Bennett and her father, where they the fathers basically say, Listen, I know the rules, um, but you do you you should do what will make you happy, right? Like there's, there's like some version of that speech in, in Austin that recurs um, and the sort of father figure, but he, he actually does everything right. I mean, I guess you could quibble with the, um, one of the iconic lines about um, when she gets her, when she gets her report card um, <laughs> and, and she says, well, some teachers were trying to lowball me, daddy. And I know how you say never accept a first offer. So I figured these grades are just a jumping off point to start negotiations. Um, personally okay, love that, it. Feel that that is your child. A, well, if she can argue that way. <laughs> yeah. Like no notes, good parenting. But I recognize that some people might read that um, in a more declinist um, sense. Oh, I'm sure a lot of people would disapprove of a lot of the with I'm always curious and I like to imagine the question and just the thought experiment of like, could you make this movie today? How would it be different? How would it be the same? And a character like Cher, I I feel like it would be hard without some sort of adjustment for her to be as likable to audiences today because she is just so unapologetically upper class and uh it you know makes no apologies for the things that she has been born into um and in in some sense i think for people who don't really examine the movie and it, it gets a lot of grief for this is that people call her ditzy or or something like that and i think that isn't quite the term that i would use for it i really think they do a good job of saying clueless or maybe naive because Cher is very bright and smart and organized and works very hard. She is by no means the sort of lazy upper class, uh, like super entitled person. Uh, while she might be half of some of those things, she does have a lot of really, really strong qualities and act tries to attempt virtuous uh, tries to act virtuously and has the best intentions. Um, but she isn't necessarily just someone that we would sort of get on the screen now and a lot of people would scoff at and be like, oh, I can't empathize with a person like this at all. She has a kind of what you were talking about it earlier, Catherine, with this sort of uh, trying to pull people into positions that they may not want to be in or be suited for. It has a kind of Leslie Nope uh, attitude to, to <laughs> it, where she's like, I have all of these great intentions and ideas, but not everybody wants to follow them. And in the end, uh, I think even by the end of Parks and Rec, you see that both her town and the people that she's close friends with don't need to all work in government and sort of strive 
in the same ways that she wants to strive. Really, when they split up and each go their separate ways and pursue the things that they want to do, they all end up exponentially happier and more uh, fulfilled. Full disclosure, obviously, I'm an Emma. Like, obviously, I'm a Cher. Like, I'm absolutely (laughs) exactly this character. So I have a lot of empathy for her of, like, I really do think I know best for lots of people lots of the time. And, like, (laughs) one of the sources of my libertarianism is... I know intellectually that that's wrong, right? Like I, I have, I have There's these, an internal like, struggle. <laughs> I have these like authoritarian tendencies, which is why I am a libertarian. And I think you know those on the interpersonal level are just like a charming quirk, and on the political level are like a sinister, um, you know, uh, cause for all of our problems. But the, um, you know, the impulse manifests itself also in in extremely positive ways, like her fantastic. Um, debate class speech about immigration, which um, is just frankly, like, again, you know, I think it's funny because the teachers are are quite caricatured in this in this um, movie, right? They're they're exasperated by their ridiculous student bodies. They are not, however, um, angry or burnt out, right? Like, they're just kind of like bemused. And I think that is sort of interesting, but they're they are also absolutely not interested in doing what I think like 21st century teachers would do, which is like they would hear this speech that she gives and say, like, yes, actually, that was great. Let me like nurture and feed what is special in you. They are just like, that was not the assignment. What the hell, man? Yeah. Um, (laughs) But the fact that she calls them Hadians is incredible. Um, But it's a speech about immigration. And she says... Uh, it, she she says, it's like when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? And I said RSVP because it was a sit down dinner, but people that came like did not RSVP. So I was totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, redistribute the food, squish in extra place settings. But at the end of the day, it was like the more the merrier. In conclusion, may I remind you, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Girl, yes. Yes. <laughs> That's 100% yes. What a cheers to that. that. As um, a former high school speech and debate competitor, well, former high school and college <laughs> speech and debate competitor, there was a part of me that was like Landry, I'm so surprised to learn. I that. know, right? It's <laughs> shocking when you when you meet me. Um you're just it, there's a part of you that both it like clenches every muscle in your body cuz you're like you spoke for like 20 seconds. But then also you're like but she was the most succinct she had evidence. She had like claims and a bit of a warrant. Like I, I thought it, it very much. I felt conflicted, Honestly, but I good. also was like, "Open borders, queen." I support her. <laughs> yes. Also, we... the teacher, the teacher's reaction was just like, "Are you what? Like, are you are you kidding?" <laughs> but like, I kind of appreciated that. Like Catherine was saying, it was like the teachers. I, they're like. A little bit like, well, we're stuck in this situation because we have this student body and, you know, this is this is this is how it's going to go from here on. And I think it's interesting. I saw Landry put this in the notes, but to me, the like when I think of like a movie set in like a high school drama, I think of Mean Girls because that was like the iconic high school like clicky drama movie when I was when I was younger. And when you juxtapose that. Mean Girls with this movie, they have like some similar like trends, but obviously the the movies are very different. Um, like the like the whole trend of like trying to change someone to make them like 
they like when you know what's be- when you think you know what's best for them like that's that's what they do to uh Lindsay Lohan's character in Mean Girls like she they change her completely and now Lindsay Lohan's character like buys into it and you know goes the whole we on on Wednesdays we wear pink um but i think those two movies kind of show a little bit like different um different sides of what was going on culturally at the time they were released like Mean Girls was in like 2005 i think 2004 2004. 2004. Um, and I think that was much more like they really leaned. Of course, Landry knows that date. Well, I Googled actually, it. I Googled actually. it beforehand. <laughs> I watched it on a plane to Disney World in the sixth grade. It was the first time I was on a plane. It's a core memory. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's a core memory. So I think, but that that movie seemed like incredibly negative, right? Like, and the whole, I mean, it's called Mean Girls. So it's like all about clicky, all about, uh, you know, who who thinks Regina George hurt them the most and that that movie has like a completely different vibe than Clueless like Clueless seems more like optimistic even though there are like some some cringy moments Mean Girls I never I never walked away from seeming like thinking that it was optimistic um and then when I was like thinking about more of like the high school high school movies I've seen that reminded me of Clueless I also thought of Princess Diaries which sounds weird but like that's also like there, there was like that weird high school there's lots of weird high school moments. They go to like a small private high school in somewhere in California because they're near the beach. Um, but again, that has that same like vibe of trying to change someone to make them into like who what you think is best for them. And like, I know I, I'm a Princess Diaries stan. Uh, that movie came out in 2001. Landry, you can check it. And <laughs> well, you <laughs> but it was, like, take it to quick. the bank. Let me take that. Yeah. <laughs> and but like Checks again out. like that's another interesting portrayal of like you know the high school scene that i mean that movie is also just like a little heartwarming because like every girl wanted to be a princess at that age whatever um but i think when you like look at all those three mo- all three movies at the at the same time and you juxtapose them with each other clueless definitely is like the most optimistic in the sense that like you don't necessarily you don't see like in in theory Cher should be the mean girl, right? In every high school setting, Cher is, is the mean girl from like the movies of the early 2000s. Um but she's not. So they almost like flipped who you thought was going to be the mean well, girl in that sense. Or she is. She actually does all the same things that the mean girls do in other movies that use this trope, but we but the movie is told from her perspective. And so we have this empathy for her, right? And I think to me, the other film that's like, um, you know, if you're going to kind of put it on a spectrum is Legally Blonde, right? And oh. so that's, um, you know, Classic. but that one is like where the person being made over is making over herself, right? And so that there's like the the sort of three different variants here of like the Mean Girls makeover, the Clueless ver- makeover, and the Legally Blonde makeover, um, which hit different, again, on the kind of feminism spectrum as well as on the... I don't know, just the kind of uh, where they're sitting in their cultural moments. Um, And I think, you know, the idea that there was discourse at the time around whether Alicia Silverstone was fat, right? Like that was a thing. Like looking at her in her like cute little unitard in this movie, I, you know, it like breaks my heart that that was a conversation. And yeah, they have her saying lines like, oh, no, I had two mochaccinos this morning and I feel like a heifer. Like, they just, like, put those words in the mouths of 15- and 16-year-old girls who are watching this movie with no thought at all about, like, what – and I don't – I think it's because it wasn't – it didn't originate in that movie. That was just – it was just in the right. culture. Um, and this was – you know, this was the period where kind of heroin chic is coming in. 
and um and there's like a very particular aesthetic which you know alicia silverstone is in many ways the kind of like sunny california counterpart to to that look um you know she's she's um and she's you know she suffers later i think for that um in her career but it's also there's just lots of casual there's lots of lots of casual interlady you know war <laughs> interlady warfare the line about um someone being a monet and then Ty says, what's a Monet? And she says, it's like a painting. See, from far away, it's okay. But up close, it's a big old mess. Ooh. What? Rude. What? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's weird. Like, the there's yeah. the lineage that we're talking about of, like, other films that exist on this spectrum. Like, uh, I thought of Mean Girls also, Natalie, because at one point Paramount, what, in the midst of, like, looking at all these films they owned, they wanted to release like CD-ROM games and they were like, we're going to do Pretty in Pink, Clueless, and Mean Girls. And I saw the connection between the latter two, but the Pretty in Pink one was was much more tenuous. And I was thinking of other things that exist within this network of movies and influences. And I can see how we get to Mean Girls from Clueless. But I think it... It takes because, especially because, not only is it really similar, they crib it, it like exact moments and lines. Like we, like Catherine was saying, uh, the perspective of Cher is what we take instead of Regina George in uh, Mean Girls, where they where they do the 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 makeover um, and they try and make this girl into something that she you know isn't, and then that new girl takes the place of. Uh, the one who did the makeover, which happens to Ty after she is almost thrown over the railing of a shopping mall um, <laughs> and everyone suddenly flocks to her and she becomes the center of attention for a brief moment in time. But the movies that sort of exist in the clueless line are like clueless and legally blonde. Exactly. But how do we what what came in and intersected with those to make mean girls? And to me, it's Heather's and Jawbreaker. Um, which are both really, really interesting, much, much more dark, uh, sort of biting dark comedies about this idea of the the high school girl and all of the the tumult that goes on in her life. And then when those two films come together, we get the Mean Girls thing that wraps them up together and isn't quite as hard edged, but is not nearly as sunny and encouraging by the end but it still has that kind of like everybody gets a little bit better at the end even though regina george gets hit by a bus i was just gonna say regina george gets hit by gets hit by a bus little, yeah but she gets better. better she doesn't die yeah i mean there's also there's a certain i mean again in keeping with the title there's a there's a certain like naivete in clueless that i think you know, again, this may just be me speaking to the person I was when I saw this movie the first time. But like I I was an absolute sucker for all the like health class propaganda. Like I legit believed that if I did a drug, I would di like die. You know, I mean, I like there was, you know, I and and it's, you know, when we have Cher saying stuff like, um, you know, it's one thing to spark up a doobie and get laced at parties, but it's quite another to be fried all day. Like she really is bringing this kind of like Protestant work ethic <laughs> to her like Los Angeles 90s teen social life. Uh, uh, that's it's it, it was resonant. Like there, there's something there that's like this longing for the 
sort of pretense of a kind of, um, you know, the, the it's the baking bread thing that Natalie mentioned. Like, you know, there's a sort of like 1950s, like you work hard, you make good, you can be anything you want to be. Um, all you need is to kind of like be culturally literate and follow the rules, right? And by the end of the movie, uh, by the end of the movie, we have, you know, we have Ty saying to Cher, like, you're a virgin who can't drive. Um, and and it hits, it like cuts deep, right? It does. It's so good. And it's like, she is a virgin. Like she, you know, in choosing this sort of weird blinkered 90s version of 50s virtue, she has overly circumscribed her life. And, and you know, she wants to kind of take a woman who is in many ways more sophisticated, you know, who has seen more shit um, and and like draw her backwards into this into this kind of less broadly aware. And I think you know we should probably take a minute and talk about race in this movie, which is like both like the the cringe levels are astronomical in the sense that like the black characters are are you know given lines that are um you know it's it's not like minstrelsy, but it is like every line spoken by a black character is like written in this strange pastiche of like the way that actual black Americans spoke at that time and whatever Hollywood screenwriters thought black Americans sounded like, I guess, like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that is what people sounded like in LA, but my high school was 50% black. Like people didn't sound like that. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. That was, Um, I, that was definitely one of the more cringy parts, especially like watching it back more recently. Like I didn't pick up on that. Like, that kind of stuff when I watched it when I was younger, like this, cause this is used to be me and my sister's like favorite movie. Um, and like every time, a, every time a black character thought talked, I was like cringing this time. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's like so painfully, like just like obvious still- that there's a disconnect between what Hollywood thought, like the lexicon was and what it actually is like. Well, and at the same time, it's like, I can't remember fully, but I mean, certainly at that time, people thought nothing of populating their movies exclusively with white characters. Um, so on the other hand, it's like, okay, well, but at least, you know, <laughs> at least they tried. It was, like, I don't it was know. a step, a single step, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially, say, it, you know, you have to give the movie credit for like, it passes, it passes the Bechdel test with the flyingest of colors, but it also, it, it also passes, like, the the characters whose experience is outside of that of our you know admittedly attractive white female main character like they they have their own lives they have their own conversations they interact about things that are not just our main character like you you know you do have to give it credit for that again small credit it's it's right. <laughs> the, hats, the topics the, the topics of discussions that pass the Bechdel test in and of themselves have their own issues that come across, yeah. especially yeah. with that sort <laughs> that of is correct. intrafemale discussion. No, so my my case for this movie is that it is it is the Hamlet of my generation. Like the number <laughs> in in that, in that, wait for it, in that um <laughs> A lot of phrases that you think are just phrases in the English language are actually from this document, right? I mean, I think that this is like when you're in high school and you read Hamlet for the first time and you realize that just like stuff people say all the time is Shakespeare and that it's right there. It's in the text. It's clearly written for the first time in this text. And I think um, re-watching 
this movie made me realize how many of the phrases that I just casually kind of thought were like things people said in the 90s were in fact things, lines in Clueless that just got into our heads. I mean, the as if is like the most classic of the lines, but the like rolling with the homies, the totally bugging, the like, there's just like so, so, so many turns of phrase and lines in this movie. I mean, and also like that when they're in the line for tennis and she says like, my doctor says I can't do anything where balls fly at my nose. And someone says like, well, there goes your social life. Like every, every line in this movie, when they open their mouths to say it, I was like, I remember that line too. And I, think I was that riding that the is, crimson wave. I had to I haul ass the, to the bathroom. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I don't know if, I mean, I doubt that Clueless is the first movie to do the anthropologist's uh, exploration of the lunchroom, right? Where it's like, there's right. the stoners oh, yeah. and there's the whatever. Another mean that girls is a trope that, that they took. Uh, exactly. In Mean Girls, in many other subsequent movies. Um, I doubt that it was invented in Clueless, but it certainly reaches its like initial, like it reaches its its peak form in Clueless. Um, and that is 100% how I perceived my high school cafeteria. Like I, I could have given you the Clueless map. I could have given you the Mean Girls map of that cafeteria because that framework was given to me by this film. So I don't, I think there's, I, I think it's, it's. For for its all of its cringe, for all of its flaws, I do think that you know the number of things that it just incepted into the brains of like elder millennials is kind of actually astounding. Well, I was thinking about this when I was rewatching it. Do you think the people that watch like the anyone younger than us that watches Clueless now, like we're we're all rewatching it because you know it had like it's a core memory for Landry. Like it all had like pivotal moments in our lives. Like me and my sister loved watching it, but like the high school age and older kids that watch it now, well, one, are they even watching it? Like, is it, is it something that's on their radar or like, do they watch it now and laugh and be, and, are, and are like, ha ha mom, that's like how your high school was. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I like, think, I don't know if it's I, cherished anymore. I think it might be like Hamlet in that you watching it is, is irrelevant. Like, you don't have to consume the original document. Right. Like, we're living in the world that Clueless made, man. That's an overstatement. But, like... But, I mean, only slightly. But, the, I mean, the fact that, right, like, I think ev- I think many, many people who are in high school today would recognize the the yellow plaid skirt that we started out with, right? And they might even be able to source it to one of those 90s movies, right? Like, I, I maybe they don't know it's Clueless, but maybe they would they go, sort of oh, yeah, era. I've seen that gif or or like, yeah. I know that meme, but they would have yeah. no idea its source. It's divorced. It's like totally divorced from the source. But this is, I mean, I suppose this is like maybe too, too big a question to take on. But like, what is a better legacy that like some list of of movie nerds thinks that you made a great film or that you incepted a bunch of stuff into the culture that lives beyond even the awareness of the movie um well, there's also and there's think... a there's a broadway play now too right there's a broadway play they did they did yeah. a musical although yeah. yes i think like broadway nostalgia musicals are like if anything it's like you know when the new york times does a trend piece like if, if broadway has made a nostalgia musical about it like it's over for yeah, sure Yeah, the shark like has clearly been jumped just, over just yeah. leaping over the shark <laughs> well they did that for mean girls and legally blonde they did it <laughs> actually <Yep. laughs> Yeah, my, my point stands. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I feel like thank you for the. Though the, the I will say the Mean Girls musical not terrible. Legally Blonde, a big hit. 
Um, I can't say I've listened to it too much, but I mean, people love it. They still love the musical, which I was not expecting. I was thinking people would scoff at it and be like, this is a cash grab. But no, people, they eat it up. They eat it up. Can we talk about one last element in this movie, uh, which is the the centrality of the driving test, right? So this is yes. a thing. Okay. Yeah. This is a thing that, like, I do think is, like, a huge cultural change, right? Like, if you're a teenager now watching this movie, I'm not sure that you understand the crushing. I mean, you know, I would say, like, you're a virgin that can't drive. Like, the crushing feeling of failing a driving test in the year 1995 like catastrophic right and now it's like well i mean like a lot of kids don't even get their licenses whatever like and i wonder what that i don't know what that says like you know always natalie and i are are joking about um every story is a zoning story uh if you look closely (laughs) enough uh or like a a licensing story um and i do think there is there's probably like you know the peak of prosperity in this period that this film is set and especially in los angeles during the period that this film is set is is this sprawly McMansion car culture. And a lot of our libertarian brethren at that time spent a lot of energy defending sprawl, right? Like this is a dream that people want to pursue. They want this. Um, and, you know, to be told by um, environmentalists or certain types of urbanists or whatever that like this is, you're, you shouldn't want this, right? It's the same, it's the same as Cher saying like, you shouldn't want the stoner skateboarder like you you want the wrong things and you're bad because of it and i can fix you um you know we're not in a moment right now where people want that life like you know the the most elite people are living in high density downtowns and they want to uber around and they you know they want their kids to to take mass transit or whatever i guess but the i think we might be returning to that Right. I mean, there's this sort of oh, urban decay meme that's going on now. Um, you know, there's not like we never uh, other than the Pismo Beach disaster, which exists in the distant <laughs> background um, of this film. We don't we, we never see a person suffering. Right. Like except for for love. Um, but we we know in the background, like when she gets when she gets mugged at gunpoint in a parking lot like lest we forget like that was a thing that happened in the 90s that people were like yeah that just happens to people like it's totally normal to sometimes get held up at gunpoint and have to ruin your christian serrano dress on the ground um because you're you're face down in a parking lot in la you know um and it was like it was a very different moment in terms of crime but i think at least the perception is that we're returning to that. And so it, it would be interesting to me to see if this kind of siren song of the car-based suburban utopia, like if that if that goes back to being the thing people want, is that going to reorient some of our cultural fights in public policy? You know, do we want to be Cher's dad? Or or is there is there something else? There's also it was funny because at least when when I was in high school too, like your driver's test was like that was something everyone talked about, right? There was like a pivotal moment in high right. school, like when you could you could drive your friends around. It was also like uh, people would be like kind of quiet about when they were taking their tests in the event that they failed, so that they could like re-sign up and no one would know. Like it wouldn't be like a huge embarrassment if they failed. And I just I don't think as many people like I like 
me and my siblings, we like went for that driving test the day we could, right? And it was like, we signed up, we were there at like 9.30 a.m. in line at the DMV and like, it was yeah, all hunky-dory. I don't think people, I don't think kids do that anymore. Like, they I don't, don't think it's like, but it was also, I mean, my parents wanted to stop driving us to school. So like they had like a, yeah. other, other, <laughs> other motivations to like get us a driver's license as soon as right. possible. But like that and like the amount of people that just like don't own cars, but maybe, I mean, this is also like a little biased just because like we all, well, besides Landry, <laughs> live like in cities that you don't really need a car. Um, and I don't need I a car think- where I live. It's great. <laughs> yeah, but but I think you're right, Natalie. Like this, yeah. this in, the centrality of this rite of passage of getting the driver's license, and like that, that it was also a referendum on like, I mean, it was our bar mitzvah, right? Like it's like I'm yeah, a I'm exactly. an adult now, right? And yeah. it was like we were not adults. Like narrator, they were not adults. Like, but, <laughs> but <laughs> when you have um, that it, agency and the ability to go yeah. outside the geographic bounds that you've never had access to before, it's a huge, huge like turning point in your it life. It was a freedom. Absolutely. It was like a freedom. Yeah. And in fact, right, the scene where um where uh you know Dion go- goes accidentally goes on the freeway and then you know there's like this panic and they're driving on the freeway and they're going to they're all going to die and the you know truck is honking and then at the, you'll recall in the in the movie that like that what happens is like then she loses her virginity, right? Like it, it's like an actual it's like multiple rites of passage that are all based around automotive competency um and that's just like that's just gone um and or i mean i think it's still actually a reality for much of the country but the you know the teenagers that i know and the sort of people who live in cities it's much less central and so i guess just among other things that age weirdly in this movie the emotional drama around failing your driving test is like well just take it again who cares no everyone cares it's the most important yeah. thing. <laughs> Yeah, My I'm always curious. <laughs> I, I always think it's probably not as big of a deal because access to resources and uh, social media and socialization is just the barriers are so much lower than they were when, you know, when we were younger, because to see people and talk to people, it was either call on a landline. You know, I was at the age where young kids younger and younger were starting to get cell phones. So there were plenty of people that still didn't have access to them. Uh, at a certain point while others were and even just a few years before that it was it was still you know very common for people to not have cell phones so to go socialize with people and also to gain information whether it's to go to the movies or go to the record store or or anything like that meant going somewhere else and in a car dominated culture there were only so many ways that you could do that and today it's exponentially easier to you know, log on to Spotify and listen to, you know, the entire, ca- you know, catalog history of the world or <laughs> watch something on one of the 50 million streaming services that we have all while messaging people, you know, all at once and uh, carrying out, you know, 15 different flirty text message threads with all of the different boys and girls that people are, you know, awkwardly teenagerly flirting with. It's just it's a completely different ball game. Um, and one that is just so daunting and otherworldly compared to what Clueless exists in. So it's, it's just a really interesting sort of time capsule of um, what the world was like at that period, even if it's not super real. Um, there's enough in there that is real. 
I'm always team like when people say like this movie was revolutionary for its time or like this movie really captures it's a period piece that, that makes me not want to see it. Like, I, I don't know. Sure. I'm Maybe I'm just like a Philistine. I just don't, uh, you know, I don't, I mean, obviously I'm on this podcast talking about Clueless, right? Like you, I know y'all have done some highbrow stuff. And so I'm feeling a little self-conscious about bringing uh, my, We also talked about The my, Simpsons, so. I love to make people watch terrible things and everyone's be like, you want to do what movie? And I'm like, I want to put you through hell for this yeah. show. That's. <laughs> but this was this is a delight and short. This was a treat. Oh God! Hmm. Remember when movies were short? It um, went down easy. It went down easy. It went down easy, but it was kind of nutritious in the end. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop the letter N, lock with an E, like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. <laughs>